Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined today for the very first time by special guest co-host Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Pat. I'm so excited to be here for the first time. And Kathleen, you are more or less new to opera? I am very new to opera. I've seen two operas in my life, one with you. And I am very excited about this one because I have read the book that it is based on, and that's where I come at this from. Well, we, we should probably end the suspense. Today's opera is Lucia de Lammermoor. Based on The Bride of Lammermoor, which is an 1819 novel by Sir Walter Scott. Set in Scotland. Indeed, set in Scots, native Scotland. And it is set at the beginning of the 18th century, um, as is the opera. It, yes, and you are quite the literature expert, I understand. I am definitely a burgeoning aficionado of literature. I have a master's in English from Boston College, and I'm so happy to finally make use of it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what a treat for us. Well, this is opera for everyone. So we want to invite everyone to enjoy this great bel canto masterpiece by Donizetti. It is arguably the one bel canto opera that remained straight through in the repertoire even when other bel canto operas fell out of favor. Bel, bel canto is back in favor, or it's certainly back as part of the standard repertoire. But Lucia de Lammermoor never never went away entirely. It was that much of a success and and that beloved. The novel was also very beloved. It was very popular. And it's also one of Scott's strangest novels. It's very tragic. A lot of his novels are much more comic and they tend to have happy endings. I didn't associate comic with Walter Scott. Yes, he has a lot of stories about sort of the common people that he makes fun of. He's right. a very sarcastic narrator, but this one is is very tragic. He likes to reestablish order at the end of his novels by having his heroine and hero end up happily a lot of the time, but that is, spoiler alert, not the case. There are no one. spoiler alerts that we need to worry about in opera. <laughs> it's all about knowing what's coming up. Well, this is going to be very sad. Yeah, this is not... Um, Elixir of Love, <laughs> or Don Pasquale, or any of Donizetti's comic operas. There is tragedy, grief, and uh, dare we say blood in this mm, one. Just a bit. Well, would you like to set the scene for this story and tell us what we're going to open up on as we start? I would love to. So we open up on the Scottish Moors in Lammermoor, and we're going to meet a character first named Normano, who is the groundskeeper for Ravenswood, which is a ancient Scottish estate. But uh, the family that used to live there have been usurped, and there's sort of a new family that's that's in there. A new laird in town. A new laird in town, and his name is Enrico. Enrico. We should maybe make a comment on the names here, because... I should probably just mention briefly the librettist was Salvatore Camarano, who also wrote Roberto Devereux, that libretto, as well as a couple of librettos for Verdi. These names are all in Italian because it's Italian language, but because it's Sir Walter Scott as the source material, I confess, I know right now, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to jump in and use some of the English names. Yes, and it doesn't help that uh, two of our main characters are Edgardo and Enrico. So please forgive us if it we might be easier just to go with them up. Edgar and Henry. <laughs> yes, Edgar, Henry, and Lucy are going to be our English main characters. Yes, our our soprano, our tenor, and our baritone. Mm-hmm. Guess who the baddie is? <laughs> baritone. If you're new to opera, it's the baritone. It's always the baritone. <laughs> Even I knew that. <laughs> okay, so. 
take us back to our, our initial setting now that we've straightened out the name or explained the usage of names. Yes. So the initial setting, so we are on the Scottish Moors. There's sort of a, a group chorus hunting party that comes in with the master of the hunt or the groundskeeper, Normanno. And we are going to encounter for the first time also Enrico, who is the laird of the estate. And Henry. Nor- Henry. <laughs> and Normanno is going to give him some news that is going to make him rather upset about his sister Lucy or Lucia. Okay, don't leave us hanging. What's the news? <laughs> so the news is that, see, Enrico is in a bit of dire straits financially and politically. Yeah. The party that he supported in England, the king he supported, William of Orange. Oh, of William and Mary fame. Of William and Mary fame. He has just died. And so Enrico or Henry is very concerned about how his family's fortunes are going to fare in the in-between transfer of power. And he's also deeply in debt. So he wants his sister to marry a man named Arturo, Arthur, who is very well-connected and wealthy, but Lucy has refused. Okay, so we're going to go over this as we go along. Don't worry, you don't have to take notes. Just let's enjoy this first song, What a Cruel Blow by Enrico Henry, and then Norman Raymond and the chorus join in.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone. This is Lucia de Lamamor by Gaetano Donizetti. And we have just met our first main character, Enrico, or Henry, who is the laird of Lamamor. And he's kind of upset. Why is he upset? Well, so we, we talked a little bit that he's upset his sister, Lucy or Lucia, won't marry the man he wants her to. But here Classic. he finds out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So here he finds out that it's not just that. The cruel blow he talks about is that she has fallen in love and engaged herself to his mortal enemy. Oh, it's not just she's in love with another man, but the worst man on the planet for her to fall in love with. Edgardo. <laughs> so Edgardo is the is the son of the previous owner of Ravenswood. Who was on the other side politically? Of the Jacobite Rebellion, yes. So the first Jacobite Rebellion was 1689. Oh no, my head's going to start hurting. Okay, okay. go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll not throw out any more dates. <laughs> no, don't, don't, you won't be able to keep that promise. 1689. So <laughs> Edgardo's father supported the Jacobites. And so that rebellion failed, as did all of the subsequent rebellions, and it was, it was very sad for the Scottish. But anyway, so there's, there's a lot of politics in the novel, not a lot in the opera. Not really. But that remains a little bit. That It's not just that they're mortal enemies for no reason, it's politics as well. So you've got kind of a Romeo and Juliet situation going right. on here. Right, and Edgardo, or Edgar, mm-hmm. blames... Enrico Henry mm-hmm. for the death of his father yes, and the for the taking of the lands. Yes, exactly. So you've got this situation set up where these two people are, are, are pretty much steeped in a desire for vengeance against each other. Right. But Edgardo has fallen in love with Lucia. Complicated. Very complicated. But anyway, Enrico very, very, very upset about this. And there's a lovely story about why she falls in love with Edgar. Oh, yes, of course. Well, in typical Gothic romantic fashion, Yes. Um, she was walking one day in the fields and a wild boar attacked her. Oh no. <laughs> or no, sorry, not a wild boar, a wild bull, even better. A wild animal with lots of horns tried to attack her and Edgardo shot it and killed it before it could hurt her. And her she, hero. Of course, and she faints, of course. And he picks her up and carries her to a fountain oh. and is like, are you all right? Are you all right? And she looks up and he's the most handsome man she's ever seen and the rest is history. I can imagine the violins <laughs> coming in right there. And uh, in the novel, one of the things that's talked about a lot, not as much in the opera, is that Lucia, who we'll meet pretty soon, she's very imaginative. She has a really rich fantasy life. Mm. And so this sort of gothic romantic thing to happen to her, she there's no way she could prevent herself from falling in love with Edgardo. Right, this handsome young man saves saves her her. from the wild (laughs) beast of course exactly well i think we've got a little more music coming up from henry yes lucy's brother so if you were not convinced yet that enrico is a little bit of a villain this one is called it's useless to speak to me of compassion oh okay (laughs) (laughs) so some more of him establishing himself as the villain of the piece Sorry, 
to Donizetti's Lucia de Lamamore on Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Kathleen Vandewill. Kathleen, thank you so much. Well, we have just finished the first scene of the first act. We've met Enrico. Enrico. We've met Normanno, who's the sort of captain of the forest. And then we've also met Raimondo, who we haven't really talked about yet, but he's the chaplain and he's Lucia's tutor. Right. He's kind of one of these, this is not uncommon for great families in various Mm -hmm. parts of Europe to have a clergyman associated with the family Mm -hmm. because that's the educated person who teaches the reading and the writing and also provides spiritual guidance and support. Yes, and he will provide some, I consider, dubious guidance throughout the piece, but we'll see that. I (laughs) concur. So we haven't met Lucia yet. Well, scene two. But here we are. So scene two, we're meeting Lucia and her companion sort of handmaiden, whose name is Alice. Mm -hmm. Lucia and Alice are at the aforementioned fountain, and Alice and Lucia are waiting for Edgardo to arrive. Oh, an assignation. An assignation. This is where they meet, and they have been meeting Mm -hmm. um, for some time. But he is not there yet, so they're going to have a little chat about whether it's a good idea for them to be there at all. So... This fountain as well, and this song she's going to talk about, but she is going to talk about an older story that she's obsessed with, which mm. is a ghost story. And this Always good in the gothic <laughs> romance. Yes, there's, there's several versions of ghost stories throughout this piece, and this is the first one. There's a story, this is in the novel as well, of a Ravenswood ancestor who slew his mistress oh. at this fountain out of jealousy or something. And Ravenswood is the estate that we're on right yes, now yes. that her brother is the lord mm-hmm. of. And, Ed- okay. and Edgar's last name is, is Ravenswood. Mm. So 
This serves as sort of a metaphor for how we can probably view what's going to happen in the story, perhaps. It's a, it's a portent, and it's also this kind of idea of, in Gothic fiction, a lot of times they talk about doubling. So mm-hmm. there's this live Lucia in the middle of the story, and then there's this dead ghost woman that we're talking about. And so Lucia sees this ghost, and she keeps talking to Alice that she's seen this ghost. So we already see that Lucia's very impressionable. Does that concern Alice? Not as much as it would concern me. <laughs> but I suppose this is, you know, But early, you don't live on the Scottish moors. <laughs> early 18th century, where seeing a ghost in Scotland was not as unusual as perhaps it is now. I think maybe she doesn't take it as literally as Lucia does, but Lucia's going to talk about this ghost in, in the song we're about to hear.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was the title character, Lucia de Lamamor, letting us know about this ghostly woman that she saw. But I think we're about to hear a little bit about this dashing young man she's fallen in love with. Yes. So the next song is titled, I'm Caught in the Rapture, and she talks about her burning love for Edgardo. He's still not here, so we're going to talk some more about how much we but love him. But they're awaiting his arrival, <laughs> yes. she and her companion, Alice. Yes. And it's very sad, especially when you think about what we'll find out happens later. Lucia is very friendless. She's very alone. She right. has Alice and Raimondo, but they're kind of servants in her life, and, and as we'll see, give... And her brother's kind of crummy advice. And her brother's very cold. He's he's full of avarice. He doesn't really seem to have a lot of affection for her. She's also, and this is the first time we'll talk about this. She's just lost her mother. Her mother has just died. Oh, that and is lonely <laughs> then. Yes. Yeah. So she's very lonely. It's sort of implied that her mother was maybe her only friend. So she's placed her entire hope for happiness, friendship, fulfillment in her relationship with Edgardo. And the fact that that's going to be threatened is, is going to be very destabilizing for her. <laughs> to say the least. To say the very <laughs> least. Thank you. 
listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was Lucia de Lamamor telling us how much in love she is. And she and her companion Alice are awaiting the arrival of her true love, Edgar. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's about time that we meet Edgardo, which we will do in this next track, which is called On the Grave of My Poor Betrayed Father. Right, and before that, though, mm-hmm. he tells Lucia, I love you so much. I love you, I love you, but I need to let you know I got to go on a business trip. Yes, uh, so we meet him, and five seconds later, he's off. Um, (laughs) Sailing to the friendly shores of France to negotiate Scotland's future. There's just little hints Mm -hmm. at the politics here, not a real in-depth exploration. Yeah, exactly. You can see sort of hints of, of Scott's original source material in this. France, of course. France during this time period was very friendly to anyone who wasn't England. And so if you were a fan of Scottish independence, Scottish nationalism, which it's hinted that Edgardo is and his father was, then France is going to be your friend. As opposed to her brother, Mm -hmm. Henry, who was more allied with King William Mm -hmm. of William and Mary. Yeah. So it's, it's an easy way to think about it that Enrico is very pro UK mm-hmm. <laughs> there's going to be Great Britain will be established in about five years from this time period under Queen Anne the next queen right and so Enrico is very much throwing his chips in with the establishment of, of Great Britain and Edgardo wants Scotland to remain independent right so he's off to France to he's secure to France. some assistance exactly so I love you but I gotta run Exactly. (laughs) Yes. And poor Lucia, who's so lonely and has no friends basically at all and has just lost her mother. Edgardo says, sorry, politics, honey. I got to go to France. Right. And he's going to remind us what his family has suffered in this effort. Yes, because, of course, he's got to throw himself the first of many pity parties. Well, that was a little harsh, a little critical. Well. (laughs) But I don't disagree. He has a lovely voice. (laughs) He's the tenor after all.
You're listening to Lucia de Lamamore on Opera for Everyone. And I'm joined today by esteemed literary <laughs> critic. I suppose that's a compliment. <laughs> esteemed. Uh, este- you are esteemed, <laughs> Kathleen. Kathleen, thank you so much. I, oh. we, I don't think we could do this opera without you. Well, I'm having a blast. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. So, Edgardo, mm-hmm. Edgar has just told us how unhappy he is with the situation where his father has been killed, who wouldn't Mm be, and he's got revenge, and he's also helping, trying to help out Scotland. Mm -hmm. He's got a lot on his plate. Yeah, so we just listened to, he talks a lot in in the track we just listened to about, he's vowed revenge, basically, on Lucia's family. But now he's in a situation where he is being asked to take a different kind of vow, a vow of love and engagement to this woman that is his sworn enemy, but he loves her anyway. Um, well, he doesn't have anything against her, per it's se. True. It's her brother. <laughs> it's true. This is, to be stated, very much none of this is Lucia's fault. So he is very torn, and he's in a situation where he's mourning his father, she's mourning her mother, and he sympathizes with her, and he's really become her whole world. So he decides that it's important for him to forsake his vow of vengeance and swear a vow of love and fidelity instead. Well, that sounds like a good positive step forward. Give up the vengeance, focus on the love. I'm sure it'll turn out Yes. Wonderfully well. Whoever his therapist is, is doing a wonderful job at Mm -hmm. this point. So they're going to, in our next track, they're going to do that. They're going to swear eternal fidelity to each other. They're also going to promise to exchange letters. Yes. Correspondence. Yes. Um, So one of the things that's interesting about that is during this time period and and into the Victorian time period, you would never exchange letters with somebody unless you were engaged to them. That was considered highly inappropriate. Oh, that's very Mm -hmm. intimate then. It's a little like I'm told, you're not supposed to call people on the phone anymore. Just text or send them an email. Phone call is for close friends. Maybe not engaged people, but... It's kind of similar. It's intimate. There's certain Mm -hmm. kind of communications which are Mm -hmm. considered intimate and Mm -hmm. some which are considered okay Mm -hmm. for anyone. And letters are secret, too. They're just between the two of them. So they could be saying anything. They're not being read. Well, one hopes. They're not being read by anyone else. So the the promise to exchange letters is very intimate. I feel like you've just dropped a hint there. Mm, Perhaps. Okay. Perhaps. All right. So this is the vow of love. Mm -hmm. Eternal loyalty. Swear eternal loyalty as my bride. And it is between the two of them. They're considering it a marriage. Yes. They consider the fact that they exchange rings. He just happens to have a ring that fits her. She happens to have a ring that fits his pinky finger. Well, someone (laughs) was planning ahead. So they exchange rings and they sort of say, they kneel down, they say before the world, we're engaged. You know, it reminds me of that scene in West Side Story. Mm -hmm. It's very similar. Well, I mean, West Side Story is Romeo and Juliet. And there's a lot of echoes of that here, too. Yeah, Yeah. so they pledge to each other eternal Mm -hmm. love. Yes. And husband and wife. Mm-hmm. They, they consider that to mean that their marriage is legitimate. There will be questions about that later. Yes. Thank you. 
listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Donizetti's Lucia de Lamamor, and we have just finished the first act, ready for act two, but we're not outdoors anymore. No, we are now in, in the great hall of the, the Ravenswood Mansion, or castle, where Enrico is the new laird, and he is sitting at his desk, and he's got some letters in front of him. Oh, letters. Mm, intimate so, letters? Intimate letters. All letters, of course, are intimate in their way. And... This is where we're going to find out that Enrico has had his servant, Normano, intercept all of Lucia's letters to Edgardo. And, oh, poor mm-hmm. Lucia. And any letters that Edgardo sent to Lucia also intercepted. So she thinks he's not writing. Yes, he's in France. He's not writing. What's going on? And we don't know how long this has been, but long enough that it's it's going to cause her some concern. Right. But that's not the end of our letter story, is it? No, no. So they take it a step further. And uh, Normano apparently has wonderful forging skills oh. because he forges a letter from Edgardo to Lucia telling her that he has found a new love in France and that he is abandoning her. Heartbreak. Heartbreaking. And so that is what Enrico is going to show to Lucia to convince her that she should give up and marry the man that he wants her to marry instead. Oh, no. Poor girl.
giunge il tuo sposo. Adesso presta il palamo. You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was Lucia de Lamamor and her brother. And her brother is fixated on her marrying this Arturo from a good family nearby. A wealthy family, established family. Yes, he has both money and family name. Enrico has, well, he has neither right now, and he's starting to feel a little bit desperate. Although he does have the castle. He Which does is have why the he's desperate. Yeah, in fact, he's going to talk to her about, listen, sister, this is not about your love life. This is about the survival of our family. Mm-hmm. I became lord of this castle because I backed the right horse politically, and now King William has died. That means it's 1702, mm-hmm. because that's when he dies. And he says, and he's going to be succeeded by someone who is not in my corner, who does not support me. And so the only way for us to continue being a successful family is for us to ally ourselves with some of the local gentry. And by the way, we'll get some money out of the deal too, and we'll be able to continue on in this castle. Mm -hmm. He's really asking her to sacrifice in a way, and that's what we'll hear later from Raimondo too, that, that she needs to be a sacrifice for the family name. Which has a certain resonance when it's your religious advisor, the, the minister. Mm-hmm nearby who says you have to sacrifice but he's like this is what you've got to do and give up this dream of this man who rescued you from the wild animal and get real and of course pat you're saying it in a very reasonable way i am but he will sort of show his true colors more so than he's done before in this next track because he's very rough with her yeah he kind of pushes her around in most productions on the stage Mm -hmm. like he's very physical he's very and she's I mean, she sort of presents herself as a frail individual. Yeah, so this is really emphasized in the book that she's very passive, that she's she's very, she listens to what her family and her friends tell her to do, and she kind of goes along. She's sort of representing this sort of traditional, submissive ideal of femininity. And in many ways, that's what society is asking her to be. Right. But it's also going to be the thing that causes her downfall and her unhappiness is that she really is passive she doesn't she doesn't fight as much as you would maybe expect she kind of gives in because she loves her brother which is it's very sad too because you can see how friendless and alone she is she loves her brother and she doesn't understand why he is asking her to do this thing that's going to well she she says many times she thinks it's going to kill her that she'll never get married she'll end up in the tomb instead right foreshadowing Hey, 
Lucia de Lamamor and her brother Enrico Henry. And uh, he's getting kind of tough with her. Yeah, he's done pretty much everything he can to convince her to give up on her, her dreams of romance. Including, by the way, telling her that if she doesn't, that their mother is going to haunt her. Her recently deceased Mm -hmm. mother. Yeah, that her mother will basically turn over in her grave and haunt her. So it was sort of the second instance we have of of haunting. Is that the same thing that happens in the novel? Yes, it is. Well, so... She, he uses that kind of um, language, but it's actually not him in the novel. It's the mother. The mother is the villain in the novel. The mother. I know. The so, one we're thinking was her only friend. Right. So, so it's a little bit of an odd switch. Um, Scott has the, the mother be the villain, and the brother is sort of her, he's, he's there, but he's not the central villain. Um, but there is a lot of haunting in the novel, for sure. Right. Well, that's really interesting that you move from a female mm-hmm. villain to our baritone male villain here in this opera. You have a very powerful female figure that is um, not at all present here. And then enter the bass, Raimondo, Raymond, Mm -hmm. the minister who is also her her tutor and presumably someone she relies on for good advice. Yeah, so Enrico has done his best to convince her, but it's really when Raimondo says, "I, I have done my best, I made sure that a letter got to Edgardo, but he never responded. And that's when Lucia really gives She's up She's just crushed. She's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's, it's really over. And even when she tells him about this marriage ceremony that they conducted, mm-hmm. the two of them, before he had to leave for France, he says, no minister of God bless that marriage. That vow is not valid mm-hmm. in heaven or on earth. She feels like she's married, and he says, no, you're not. Yeah, and he's really the voice of authority in that sense, too. And that is sort of the final nail in the coffin for her and her hopes for a new life with her love. Right, and he even says, yield, yield, your dead mother wants mm-hmm. you to yield. Yeah. You can't endanger your brother. You have a responsibility to your family to do what your brother asks you to do. Mm-hmm. And she... Consents. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and she she ultimately consents to be the sacrifice that he's asking her to be, which is so sad. And crushing, I think. Mm-hmm. There's a song where we get to hear Raimondo express some of these sentiments to her when she finally crumbles and complies. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome to the second half of Opera for Everyone. We're listening to Lucia de Lamamor by Gattano Donizetti. I'm Pat Wright, your host, and I'm joined today by... Kathleen Vandewell. Hello, everyone. Hello. We are in the middle of one of the great bel canto operas, really the only bel canto that did not fall out of fashion when bel canto was seen as a little too artificial really spoken about this a lot as we go through the music, all of these decorations that the singers add to their music. So first, we'd like to let you know that we are listening to a recording that was made in 1961 in Rome with the orchestra and chorus of the Academy of St. Cecilia, directed by Sir John Pritchard. The role of Lucia is sung by the great Joan Sutherland in a role, by the way, that really launched her career into the stratosphere. She was one of the great dames of bel canto. And Sir Edgar, Edgardo, is sung by Renato Cicconi, Lord Enrico Ashton, Henry Ashton is sung by Robert Merrill, and Raimondo, the priest and tutor, is sung by Cesare Sieppi. Now, the other thing we do at the top of the hour. I'm very excited to hear what that is. <laughs> the Opera Helmet Quiz. Ooh. It's a quick recap of what we have done in the plot thus far, because <laughs> Kathleen is my guest. I think I will invite her to do a quick recap for us. Bring us up to speed with the plot. Absolutely. So what's happened so far is that we've met Lucia de Lammermoor, Lucy Ashton. She has been forced, basically, into agreeing to marry a man she doesn't love, Arturo, who we're about to meet, by her brother, who is in dire financial straits and potentially dire political straits. His name is Enrico. Henry. Henry. But she loves someone else. She loves Edgar, Edgardo, who is the son of her brother's mortal enemy. So it's a little bit of a Romeo and Juliet situation. The mortal enemy who met his mortal end. Exactly, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So now these two young gentlemen have vowed vengeance on each other, and Edgardo has gone off to France to do some political things and left Lucy a little bit vulnerable, and Enrico has told her that Edgardo doesn't love her anymore, has intercepted all their letters, and has forged a letter saying that he has found another love in France, Edgardo has. So He's a baritone baddie. <laughs> he is. He's very, very evil right now. So we're about to go into meeting the man that Lucia is ultimately going to agree to marry. Right, and that happy music you heard right at the top of the hour, that is all the guests assembled in the Great Hall at Ravenswood, ready to celebrate Lucia's marriage. Mm-hmm. And Lucia is decidedly not going to be excited about this. No, no. As we'll talk about soon, she's very, very passive right now. She doesn't really seem to show that she's displeased about this because she's kind of completely given up. So she's just letting this happen to her, which is 
Very sad. Well, she's been torn apart, and as we talked about at the end of the first half, she she really was beaten down ultimately mm-hmm. by her trusted advisor, mm-hmm. the the minister and tutor, who is attached to the family. It's true. It's it's hard to resist when your your only family, your brother, and this person of authority, your tutor, is all telling you the same thing that you should do what they say instead of what you think is is right. It's very sad. And we're not done with the sad. No. <laughs> <laughs> so let's meet Arturo, the bridegroom, very excited to have this lovely young woman become his wife. He will start out by conversing with the brother. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the song we're about to hear, he's asking, where is Lucy? Where's my bride? And Enrico makes sure to tell him that just in case Lucy doesn't look excited about this, don't worry, she's just grieving for her mother and Arturo the perceptive character that he is seems to think that that is totally fine and doesn't seem at all honestly he's not as fleshed out a character as some of the others in this story it's true he kind of goes along with it and it's like all right cool that's Uh fine so here's Arturo Lucia de Lamamore by Gaetano Donizetti. And as you heard there, Lucia has come in. She has just been convinced to sign the marriage contract with Arturo. So there's there's no turning back now. Yes, yeah, she, she doesn't sound happy. Big Brother was right. <laughs> Indeed. So we want to talk a little bit about one of Arturo's lines here in this yes. piece that's interesting. He says... Such a sweet conquest. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit that there's some political undertones, but there's also a lot of undertones and some overtones of violence in this. And I think that line really, it's one of the things that really characterizes Arturo's characters. He sees this as a, as a conquest for him. It's also a reminder what a political endeavor 
marriage was among the upper classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, especially the old aristocracy, which this family is endeavoring to be, and Arturo is. Marriage really, really isn't about love most of the time, which may explain why Arturo really is able to ignore the fact that Lucia seems so <laughs> I feel like I feel like reticent. Lucia's going, sister, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, it's not happy for Lucia. It's definitely not about love. And the, just the pressures of society prevent that. So as this scene unfolds, she is giving in. She's submitting. He's conquered her Mm -hmm. the family is on board all the guests they're just there for the party and so (laughs) that's what they're expecting but it's going to get really interesting Mm -hmm. because there's a dramatic moment in this scene when the pen is given to lucy to sign this contract and there's even a moment of silence Mm -hmm. in the music as she does this terrible thing that she knows she shouldn't do, she doesn't want to do, but the pressure is just too much for her to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course... And she signs, and you <laughs> know who's going to show up, right? Of course. <laughs> who's missing from this is Edgardo, so of course he is going to burst into the hall. And then this launches us into arguably the most famous piece and was for a long time even more famous than the mad scene, which for which this opera is very famous, is this sextet. I was reading recently that back in the first decade of the 20th century, there was a recording of this sextet that included Enrico Caruso, oh. and it was being sold for $7. That's quite a lot at the turn of the century. <laughs> We're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. in today's money for Not the opera, but Mm -hmm. this piece, because you couldn't put that much music on a disc at that time. But it was just such an amazing piece. And and as the name implies, we've got, it's going to build to six singers all at once, all emoting at the top of their abilities. One of the things that I think from a story perspective is interesting about the sextet is we have Lucia singing, but most of her lines are parenthetical. Right. They're to herself. They're to the audience. She is characterized by not doing a whole lot to fight back or explain herself to Edgardo. She tries a little bit, but she's so bowled over by these other stronger personalities that she she kind of just weeps silently and begs God to release her from the pain of of her life now. And Edgardo does not take it well. He doesn't ask her for an explanation. All he asks her... Is this your signature? That's it. He holds up the paper. Right, and what can she say but yes. You know, it's always a problem when a man expects a woman who is in totally different situation to behave the way the man would. Yeah. This, or vice versa. It's totally true. The, the power differential is so stark here. That he can't even conceive of her mm-hmm. signing other than of her own free will. Right. And he doesn't really take the time to ask himself, well, why would she do this? Right. What possibly could oh, have no, he, he does not been take the time situation? <laughs> and if he had, he would have understood that he knows her brother is a villain. Right. He knows who her brother is, right. but he still... The only thing he can conceive of is that she has betrayed him. Right. And this this actually crops up in quite a number of operas that the man instantly jumps. I'm thinking of Rodelinda at this point when he, the husband instantly jumps to the conclusion that the wife has been unfaithful, which, of course, it's just mm-hmm. a little bravado a, going on that doesn't help anyone. It makes me think of there's a, a, a 19th century novel called He Knew He Was Right, which the whole concept of that <laughs> is that he thinks that his wife's been unfaithful and everyone keeps saying, nope, she's not 
and she says no and he the whole concept but he knew he was right right. and of course it ends tragically for him oh only for him oh no tragically for everyone for everyone but you know (laughs) his marriage does not survive this suspicion to say the least so with all of that introduction please enjoy this sextet enjoyed that 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 was a piece of singing that knocked my socks off <laughs> <laughs> the famous sextet from lucia de Lamamor by gatano donizetti 
So there's actually an interesting story also involving Enrico Caruso in the early part of the very early 20th century when he sang it at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. The crowd went wild at the end of this piece that we just listened to. So wild and they wouldn't calm down. They were so enraptured by what they had just witnessed, heard, that the police were called in because they thought it was going to be a terrible riot. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> an, uh, an opera riot. I it was, love it. I mean, uh, picture that. Just picture that. All these people in their elegant dress. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's beautiful. I could I could imagine rioting over this song. So after all of this emoting, there's got to be some some conflict. Yes, it, it looks like blood is is going to be spilled here. Swords are drawn. Swords are drawn. Enrico and Edgardo are about to engage in a fight right there in the middle of the fancy hall. But someone stops him. Yes, it is the voice of reason, Raimondo. Well, you know, reason, depending on what position you're taking. (laughs) Relatively speaking. In this case, yes, reason. So he implores them, don't fight, not here. Don't spill blood at your sister's engagement ceremony. Right. And and it works. They, They put up their swords for now. And Edgardo turns his attention back to Lucia. And he just chews her out. Mm -hmm. He vows vengeance, death to everybody. He's going to die. Everybody's blood is going to be spilled. And he tells her that she has betrayed both love and heaven. That is such a powerful line that he Mm -hmm. delivers, betraying both love and heaven. And she's just continuing to crumple under all of this enormous pressure. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. There's just nothing she can really do. He's so, he's just so big and looming and powerful. And she is just, she wants to die, basically, is is what she says. That's right. And finally, everyone in the hall is going to be on the host's side, Mm -hmm. on Henry's side. And they're just going to tell Edgar, be gone, go away. Mm-hmm. They call him, you wretch. Well, he is a wretched fellow at this point. Yes, very much so.
to Opera for Everyone, and this is Lucia de Lamamore by Gaetano Donizetti. So things are not going nicely. No, no. So the very last thing that, that our lover Edgardo does there is he takes the ring back from Lucia and he's trampled it under his feet. So that that relationship is, is on the rocks. Well, and she signed a marriage contract with another man. Mm-hmm. Oh, Edgar has a fabulous line that we haven't mentioned yet in yes. that piece we just heard. So one of the last things that he says is, Kill me now. My bleeding heart is the wedding gift from a betrayed fool. And interestingly, Lucia's response to all of this is not only that she wants help for herself. She prays to God. May God save him. It is a fierce and stressful moment. So in her despair, in her misery, in her just reducing of herself that's going on here, she still prays for him. It's true. She's she's really cast as a very almost angelic figure, and he does call her that at, at sometimes. Edgardo right. calls her my inamorata, my angel, and she really shows that here that she thinks about him rather than herself in in the final moments of her anguish. Yeah, she says, "It is the price of immense sorrow that on earth there is no longer hope. I am doomed to misery, but do not refuse my last dying prayer, which is to save Edgar." So as wonderful as that sentiment is from her, unfortunately, (laughs) it it doesn't turn the tide quite yet. So we're going to go into Act 3, and we're going to have a change of scenery. Where are we in the beginning of Act 3? So we're at a place called Wolf's Crag, which is kind of a gothic-y tower. And a gothic-y name, for sure. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) Right. You can hardly imagine wonderful things happen there. Wolf's Crag, where... Edgardo has been living. You know, this might be a nice moment to just mention that just as Donizetti was encouraged to write an opera based on this Scottish novel, this was a time when England and Scotland for the, for the Italians was, was a very exotic and alluring place. The concept of it being Wolf's mm-hmm. Crag. And in fact, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but there were four or five other operas before this one that had been written by people in various countries because this was such a compelling story. And it just, it seems operatic when you read it. It, it really does. And a lot of other works by Scott were adopted into operas as well. Yeah, the a lot of Gothic novels are set in Italy. A lot of English Gothic novels are set in Italy, but there was sort of a, a cross-pollination. A lot of right. Italian operas took on Scottish or, or British stories. And Scottish people were viewed by the rest of Europe as very passionate, as being ruled by their emotions. And even Scott himself in the novel says that that's the fatal flaw of the Scott, is that he's ruled by his passion and not by his reason. Oh, interesting. So perfect for an Italian opera. Yeah, I'm thinking of when we did one of our early Belcanto operas on Opera for Everyone was I Puritani. That's the Puritans in England. And then, of course, we have Donizetti's Tudor Queen trilogy. So it was... It was a topic that inspired a lot of of drama and a lot of music. 
All right, Wolf's Crag. What's happening at Wolf's Crag? So, Edgardo is minding his own business at Wolf's Crag, nursing his sorrow. Brooding. Brooding like a true Byronic hero. And suddenly he hears hoofbeats and says, who is coming to visit me here? Oh, oh, and this is the piece that has the fabulous storm in it. Yes, yes, the orchestra makes him fantastic thunder. Well, that's a real storm. I, th- I think I got wet with that one. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> yeah, you're really, we're not being subtle about, about the tone here. No, not a, yeah, a little exterior monologue, anyone? <laughs> so he's brooding and... His solitude is going to be broken in upon, as I said, by hoofbeats. And of course, the only person who could be coming to visit him is Enrico, his enemy. Right, and he'll even say, are you crazy? Why are you out on a night like this? And why are you in my home? You know I hate you and I want to kill you. Right. And he's like, well, I hate you more. (laughs) Both of them kind of have, not to get too Freudian about it, but a bit of a death drive for both of them. Yeah. And Rico goes to a place where he knows that his mortal enemy is in his lowest state and has threatened to murder him and everyone else. And Edgardo has said many times that he wants to die. They're both primed to absolutely kill each other. And Uh, so do they? They don't yet because we are still sort of British here. So we're going to have a formal duel is what they've decided. Do it properly. Do it quite properly. Um, Dueling was not legal, by the way, at this time, Mm. but it crops up all the time. So you would think it was. Everybody seems to have a duel every five minutes. We're all on board with that. We've seen Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) But but yes, it was not legal. um, So this is just them throwing everything to the winds. One way or another, things are going to end badly for them. And they agree to duel the next morning at sunrise. I bet they sing about it too. They do, and they have a beautiful duet. Beautiful and creepy. Yeah. 
that was Enrico and Edgardo singing about the duel that they are about to have over their love for Lucia de Lammermoor. Yes, and I really feel like this piece is a great moment to mention. One of the things that people didn't like about Bel Canto, interestingly, it is beautiful music, sometimes just a little too beautiful, some would argue, for the intensity of the angry thoughts that are being expressed with the words. Those were some of the criticisms that people had of Bel Canto, that there was a mismatch between these beautiful, flowing, lush melodies and the terrible things that were being said and felt. It's true, and you can really hear that in what we just listened to. One of the lines at the end is, hurry early sun so I can surround him with blood and a deadly garland, which is absolutely vampiric sounding and yet you're listening to this duet that's incredibly beautiful to hear their voices blend together so I I can see that that might have been a little bit hard to to square right it makes you think well if I just want to listen to some pretty opera music maybe I'll just put on a bel canto I don't need to know everything that's awful you could figure out some with some of the, the the strength of the singing and maybe the thunder but but it sure is pretty. It's true. And, and in Italian, who knows what they're saying? Just enjoy the sound. Well. But not on this podcast. Italian speakers <laughs> might know, but, but not me. <laughs> All right. So that is the end of the first scene of Act 3. Where are we in the second scene? So while Act 3, Scene 1 has been going on, the wedding has taken place. Meanwhile. Meanwhile. Back, back at, at Ravenswood. Right, back at the farm. This is going to be the opening of the wedding night. So the crowd that's come to cheer Lucia's wedding on is back with their familiar cry of, we're so happy that this has taken place. It's so great for us. Let's all drink and be happy. Donizetti is really setting up a very specific mood, but I, I have a suspicion that mood is about to be disrupted. Oh, I think it's more than a suspicion. <laughs> so we are about to hear Raimondo come back in with a very important message for all of the guests. Stop the celebration! Something has happened. What happened? You want me to spoil it? There are no spoilers in opera. <laughs> so Lucia, the angel, the bride, has stabbed her bridegroom in the bridal bed. Stabbed? And killed. Yes, he is, in in Scott's novel, he actually survives. Not really sure why Scott had that happen, but in the opera, we don't mess around with that. He gets stabbed several times, and Lucia famously will appear in a white wedding dress that is dipped in blood. Just smeared blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets gruesome. Which is a, a definite scene shift from what we just heard, but it sets up this idea that she's this beautiful, white, pure passive figure and now she is sort of an avenging mad woman yeah creepy so we're gonna hear a little bit from Raimondo and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk a little bit about this very famous most famous mad scene in all of opera
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Lucia de Lamamore, and things are getting tense. Very tense. Murder has been done. Right. And Raimondo, that bass we just heard, is bursting back into the Grand Ballroom to tell all the guests, stop celebrating. Things have, things have gone wrong. Lucia has stabbed her husband to death. And this is, is particularly shocking because it, it's the first real act of real violence in the piece. Right, in, in spite of all the threats mm-hmm. of violence. Lots of threats, lots of undertones of violence, but this is violence and by the most submissive character in the whole piece. So right. it's shocking, it's unexpected. It would have been very unexpected, I'm sure, for the audience the first time that they, even all of this foreshadowing. I think this is pretty shocking. Well, because it really, it really is, they revel in it. They really go for it because she comes out in that white dress, smeared in blood, holding the dagger that she has used to kill her husband. Mm-hmm. It's it's intense. So we heard Raimondo come out and the, the whole crowd is there. They're assembled. He tells them to stop celebrating. And then we just heard the beginning of him launching into the explanation of what happened. And then Lucia herself will appear. She will appear like the ghost that she has been talking about. And in fact, she will refer back to this theme of haunting that's been throughout the piece. She has become almost this ghost that she talks about. Oh, the the girl Mm -hmm. by the well. The girl by the well who was murdered and was also was stabbed and there's blood in the water. So you see Lucia has become the phantom that she that she feared from the beginning. And she comes down and one thing that we don't know until she starts singing is that not only has she murdered her bridegroom, she has also become insane. Right, she's confused. She thinks, oh, you're Edgar, I love you. And she turns to her brother, I believe, and Mm -hmm. says that. Yeah, so she sings in this first part as if she is singing to Edgardo and as if things have worked out and this is their wedding night. And that's almost how her, her mind comforts itself by thinking he's here and this is our wedding, not I'm covered in the blood of another man. Right, she's oblivious to all of this blood. And then she's going to realize it's not Edgar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the second part, she not comes to her senses exactly, but she, she realizes that she is alone and something terrible has happened and that Edgar is nowhere to be found. Edgar is perhaps having this conversation with Enrico at this very moment, and Enrico is also absent. It's just Lucia going from person to person in the crowd and trying to find her lover. And then, of course, Enrico will come in and see the result of his treachery is his sister's madness and and this murder yeah it's a drawn out scene because we have sort of this confused bit where she first appears and everyone's shocked we have a little response to her and then we have more from her it's a lengthy scene that she sings with this blood spattered white dress it's almost as if all of the things that she has not said and not sung throughout the opera she has saved up and donizetti just gives her free license to say anything that's in her her heart um so yeah she has this extended extended sequence and it's not all words it's this is part of why this is such a a a perfect opera for the bel canto style because they're the soprano can really show off her vocal abilities and these flights of fancy these powerful notes that are embroidered embellished the ornamentation it all works 
on an individual level, given who the singer is, but it it works with the madness that has come over this character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, is every single time you listen to it, depending on who's singing it, it's going to sound a little bit different, which is fascinating. Right, because they, they can play to their strengths or their desires in terms of how they sing it. One thing that's very interesting is that although most of the time in modern presentations of this opera, a flute will will play back and forth in pieces of it with Lucia. Originally, the way that it was scored, Donizetti called for a glass harmonica. Which, if you've ever heard one of those, it makes a very unearthly sound. It's very ghostly. It is ghostly. It, it would, Well, the glass harmonica itself is invented by none other than Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Thank you, Benjamin Franklin, once again. This is one <laughs> of the reasons why he was such a rock star in Europe. He harnessed lightning. He... <laughs> made musical instruments, post offices, libraries, you name it. He was a rock star. But the the concept of making music by rubbing a wet finger around the outside of the glasses existed before the harmonica. He just perfected it as an instrument that could be used in an orchestra where you would use a little foot pedal and the water would be there and so you wouldn't have to dip your finger in to, to continue on. But it, it is like this ghostly sound. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it fits perfectly with her character. Well, and there were even comments at the time it fell out of favor as a musical instrument because it was believed by many that just playing the glass harmonica would upset your nervous system and could cause madness in the instrumentalist who played it. Even more fitting for Lucia. Perfectly fitting for Lucia. All right, everyone, buckle up. We're going to hear the mad scene from Lucia de la Mamor. Thank you. 
quite something. You have been listening to The Mad Scene from Lucia de Lammermoor. I think everybody needs a maybe a minute to just like breathe out a little bit. Nope, got to get to the end of the <laughs> opera. Carry on. <laughs> That's true. So one of the interesting things about this opera and about that scene is that we see it having a lot of influence in other literature. So two things I wanted to mention are that this is the opera that Emma goes to see in Madame Bovary. Oh. So another story. of Another unhappy marriage. Another unhappy marriage. Another woman who's driven to the brink and beyond. And then Anna Karenina as well. She goes another to see. Another unhappy marriage. <laughs> she goes to see this opera in order to look for her lover at the opera. So you can see that this opera became a byword for tragic romantic It's marriages. interesting because we've talked before about how placing different operas in film is used to heighten the experience, like La Traviata in Pretty Woman. But we haven't really talked about it much on Opera for Everyone with literature. Well, it's it, literature, it's a little bit hard because you, today when we're reading You don't get them, the music. You don't get the music and people may not be as familiar, but when Karenina and Bovary would have been written, people probably would have been very familiar, especially with the sextet, maybe even the mad scene. And French and Russian. So Mm -hmm. this is definitely all over Europe anyway. Yeah, exactly. So at the end of that scene, Lucia has been carried out. She is beyond any helping at this point, beyond the reach Mm -hmm. of anyone to help her. Yeah, and this is the last time we'll see her, really, because we don't see her death but we know that this is the end of her. So now we're at Wolf's Crag. We are now at, back at Wolf's Crag, back at our Gothic castle. And Edgar is preparing for this duel that he's going to have with Enrico because he's completely unaware that any of this has taken place. Right. And so I, I know I sort of slightingly referred to Edgar as throwing himself a, a pity party earlier, but this is really the real pity party because we <laughs> have just experienced this horrible thing that happened to her. And I don't think you can listen to the mad scene without feeling intense sympathy for Lucia. Right. And then next thing we hear is Edgar saying, oh, sympathize with me I've been betrayed I've had this horrible time and and I am sure that Lucia will come to my grave with her new husband and just sort of laugh yeah at Lucia's me. life is all roses and right. sunshine she's mm-hmm. got a rich husband and I'm so sad in all of this he thinks of himself not really about her which is well shall we say a little bit typical <laughs> <laughs> well he doesn't stay alone at Wolf's Crag. No, so the rest of the chorus and Raimondo are going to come in and tell him, well, first he sees them all dressed as if for a funeral. Mm. And he says, what's happened? And of course, they have to inform him that Lucia is near death. And that's when he finds out what has happened. And we will hear the bells toll in in the next song. The death bells. That are the death bells for Lucia.
for everyone and we're right at the very end of Lucia de Lamamor and it's all very dramatic. Yes, we're we're really winding down towards the end. We have Edgardo who has he's decided I think that that this is going to be his end that he's going to kill himself now that Lucia is dead that the only place they can meet happily is is in heaven because they are the ones who are truly in love indeed so very once again romeo and juliet one of the interesting things i think about this last scene is that enrico is completely absent and has been you know lucia's brother lucia's brother henry he's been such a a force throughout the piece and and driven a lot of the action but he's completely absent and i think that's because the last thing we hear of him when Lucia is doing her mad scene is is his remorse actually which we didn't really talk about before but he expresses some remorse that he realizes he's pushed her a little too far mm-hmm. a little a little too far <laughs> <laughs> yeah he expresses remorse and and so I think that really closes out his character and he's ruined by this too of course of we course. don't really see what happens to the family afterwards but I don't think that your sister stabbing Arturo who's pretty important guy is going to lead to anything good for you or your family. Yeah, you've lost the support of the king and you've lost the affection. What little affection there may have been locally Mm -hmm. gone. 
So uh, this is really a fall of the House of Usher type of thing. Everything is, is crumbled to the ground. So now we are going to have the last word go to Edgardo and Raimondo in the chorus. Lucia has died and Edgardo is, is going to close us out here. Well, thanks for listening to another episode and enjoy this final scene where Edgar says he's going to join Lucia in heaven and we should mention he kills himself at the yes, end of this. He does. In true operatic form. Exactly. So so they they will be together in heaven by the logic of our opera. for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera Opera is is for for everyone. everyone.